This morning, you have your Bibles open to a story. It's the story of Ruth. And this story, we're going to take a look at for the next four weeks. I told you two weeks ago that if you're here and you're a guy, this would be a great time to bring your girlfriend or your wife for the next four weeks. Because this is a story that, quite frankly, is a love story. There's tons of romance. There's tons of drama. It's filled with tension. It's about real people. It's about real people who maybe could have sung the song we just sang. That song that we just sang is a song that the people in this story probably could have sang, and they would have sang it out of personal experience. Here's my encouragement to you. If you're here and you're like, you know, it's not my habit to come every week. I come every once in a while. I would encourage you this way. I'd come the next four weeks. Put it on your calendar. Make it a priority. Here's why. We're going to tell this story in chunks. And so every week you're going to leave and say, wow, I don't think we're done. Well, we're not. It's going to feel like a week-long commercial break. It is. And so I'd encourage you to make it a priority. Come the next four weeks. Just put it in your calendar. Make it a priority to be here. But do better than that. We only get the conversation started in here. I would grab one of the little devotionals, the little Bible studies that we provide with every series we do. You can grab it on the back table downstairs in the lobby. It's a way for you to track with us Monday through Friday. And so it's a way for you to say, okay, they started the conversation. I want to continue the conversation. If you're not in a group, I'd encourage you to get in a group. But I look forward to kind of unwrapping this story. Here's what I want to do, okay? Here's the plan the next four weeks. We're going to look at this story. It's four chapters long in the Old Testament of your Bible. And here's what I want to do. I want to each week zoom in. So what I mean by that is we're going to look at each of the characters in this story. We're going to zoom in, look at their life. It's fascinating. But as we zoom in, I want you to find yourself. So I think some of these characters are going to be easy for you to identify with. Look here a second. I want to tell you something. Look here. I just like to see your eyes when I say this. I don't think today is going to be easy for some of you. Like I think as we zoom in and look at some of these characters, I think we're going to look at some things and be like, ooh. But here's what I know. When you read the Bible, it's not just enough to read the Bible. You got to allow the Bible to read you, right? And so we're going to allow the Bible to read us. And as we look at some of these characters today in the first chapter of Ruth, it's going to be like, ooh, okay, I found myself. I'm not sure I'm glad I found myself, but I found myself. But then each week we're going to zoom out, okay? We're going to zoom out because the, the story of Ruth is actually a story about God. And so it's the story of God. And so as we zoom out each week, we say, okay, what is it that we can learn and know about God, his heart, his mind, and his plan? And so here's what I know about the story of Ruth. So if you're here and you're like, man, I've never heard of Ruth. Some of you have never heard of the story of Ruth. So my goal for the next four weeks is you'll, you'll know this fascinating story in the Old Testament. Some of you are like, man, I know Ruth, grew up going to church. I know all about this story of Ruth. But maybe you've never stopped and thought, well, what difference does it make to my life? That's my goal. My goal is say, okay, let's look at this little story, fascinating story about this gal and some other people in her life and say, what difference does it make to us? Here's what I know. Story Ruth, story Ruth is for people who have or are losing hope. Story Ruth is for people who are going through a hard time. Story of Ruth is for people whose life has been difficult at some point in time. Story of Ruth is for people who maybe have considered giving up. Story of Ruth is for people who are just grinding it out in their ordinary life, wondering if my life matters in the grand scheme of things. Story of Ruth is about real people. In fact, chapter one, I want you to write this down. Chapter one is about real life and real problems and how real people respond when life turns real bad. That's chapter one. Chapter one is about real life 
It's about real problems. One of the things I love about the Bible is it's raw, it's real, right? The Bible doesn't sanitize a bunch of things. We don't have a bunch of characters in there we can't relate to. So it's real life, real problems, real people, and it's about how they respond when life turns real bad. You got your Bibles open in front of you. If you don't feel comfortable using a Bible, we'll throw all this on the screen. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of race through the first five verses of Ruth chapter 1. Now, here's the deal. In the first five verses of Ruth chapter 1, we literally are going to get a decade worth of material. So the first five verses, chapter 1, is a decade. That's how long this whole story in 1 through 5 takes place. Look what it says. Follow along with me. Fascinating. In the days when the judges ruled, in those days, Israel, or it says this, there was a famine in the land. And so it says, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi. The two names of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah. They went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. Look here a second. Let's get some context. First five verses, 10 years of history, but there is so much in there that I think is important for you to understand. First, it says this whole story takes place in the days of the judges. You're like, man, what in the world is that about, right? Does that make any difference? Well, it tells us the time period that it took place during, okay? So you can, you can remember this if you like history. It's about 1500 B.C. to 1100 B.C., But what it tells me more is this, that when this story takes place, there's a lot of craziness going on in the culture. It takes place in the days of the judges. So some of you are like, well, what does that mean? What's the days of the judges? That's a great question. It takes place in the time period that you find in the book right before Ruth. And the book right before Ruth is the book of Judges. And you're saying, okay, well, what's that all about? Well, the book of Judges tells us about a time period in Israel's history that is extremely dark and can be summarized by the last verse in the book of Judges. So if you have your Bibles open, you can flip one page back, and here's what you'll find in Judges 21-25. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. And so here's what happened. Everybody just did whatever they wanted. (laughs) That's what's going on. Like when Ruth is happening, when the story happens, everybody's doing whatever they want to do. In fact, I read one guy, he said it this way. He said, the days of the judges were simply like this. It was a free-for-all in the land. He said, it was a prison riot plus spring break plus Mardi Gras equals Hebrews gone wild. That's what's going on in the book of Judges. You see, there's a free-for-all going on in the land. And here's what we read, that all of a sudden... Because God loves his people, doesn't want to leave them to their own devices, famine breaks out in the land, right? All of a sudden, there's no food. They can't find food. People are hungry, right? But where's the land where there's famine? What told us that the land where there's famine is in the place called Bethlehem. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that before, Bethlehem, because in a few short months, we're going to celebrate a holiday called Christmas, and something pretty important happened in Bethlehem. But what's interesting in our story is this, is that Bethlehem means what? Anybody know? 
means house of bread. That's interesting because in the house of bread, there's no bread. In the house of bread, there's no food. And so all of a sudden what happens when there's famine in the land because God is like, man, my people have turned their back on me. I want to get their attention. I love them. They're heading in a wrong direction. This guy named Elimelech says, hey, guess what? I'm going to take my family and move to Moab. Now, you might be in here like, okay, sounds like a good plan, right? Moab was about 30, 40 miles southeast of Bethlehem. And so you're like, what's the problem with that? Well, when it says that he took his family, moved to Moab, that's not like you and I saying, hey, there was a guy who lived in Norton, took his family to live in Canton. Because Moab would have been like, whoop, 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 because it had a history with Israel. You're saying, what's the history? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the history can be found in the book of Genesis. And the history starts with a guy named Lot. Now, Lot was an interesting guy, but Lot is associated with two cities maybe you've heard of, even if you don't understand what the story's about, but he was associated with two cities called Sodom and you've heard of it. (laughs) They were awful places. There was all kinds of craziness going on there, and God said, Lot, get your family out of here, and so he grabs his family, and they head out of Sodom and Gomorrah. His wife didn't make it. Check it out. It's an interesting story. But he and his two daughters, stay with me. If you brought your kids here, I need to just warn you, this is not PG, but I've got to tell you what the story is. We've got a great Power Kids program. It says Lot took his two daughters, and his two daughters were nervous. How in the world are we going to carry on a family line? There's no guys. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, and so they devised a plan. Their plan was this. They got their dad drunk on two separate occasions. They slept with him. He impregnated his daughters, and one of the sons born to his daughter was where Moab began. Quite an interesting beginning. In fact, Moab was a place where people lived that were very promiscuous sexually. It was a place where they worshipped the demon god Chemosh. They actually sacrificed their children to this god. It was a place, don't forget this, important in the story, that God said, I don't want you guys to go there, marry there, associate there. Like that is some bad stuff going on. So he tells his people, the children of Israel, I want you to stay away from there. Elimelech says, hey, guess what? Things are hard. I'm going to what? Go there. What's interesting, the story gets even more difficult because they're there for 10 years. He takes his family and his sons decide to marry Moabite women. By the time the story gets to the end, it turns out tragic. But as the story is going on, you need to remember this. Elimelech's name means something. In the Bible, names mean something. Elimelech means this. God is my king. He's married to a gal whose name is Naomi. Her name means pleasant or sweet. All that's about to change. They have two kids their name is Malon and Kilion. Guess what their names mean? Something like sickness and dying. That's weird, isn't it? Hey, sweetheart, look, we got this son. What should we name him? Sickness, you know? But by the end of the story, all of a sudden, the two sons they had are going to somehow describe what happens to some of them. What's interesting is when you get to verse 5, chapter 1, you find that Omelech's decision ends in tragic death. He's dead. His two boys are dead, and when you get to verse 6, chapter 1, you have Naomi and these two Moabite gals, all of them widows, all of them without their husbands. 
story gets interesting. If you're with me in your Bibles, verse 6, Naomi at that point with these two gals heard in Moab, the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. So she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living, set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. They set, they set out. They're going to take this 30, 40-mile trip back to Bethlehem. Three widows looking for a good future and some good fortune because things have not been good. You're tracking with me? This is real stuff. This is real life. This is real tragedy. This is real loss. This is real heartbreak. These people are in the dirt of life. Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back. <laughs> Don't miss this. Naomi looks at these gals. They start walking to Bethlehem. She turns around and she says, you gals should go back. Let me take this trip alone. You should not come with me. What's interesting is this. She says, may the Lord show you kindness if you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. She kissed them goodbye. They wept aloud, but both of them said, We'll go back with you to your people. Naomi said, no gals, go home. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Like, why would you come with me? I'm not going to have any more sons. She, she goes on to say, even if I were to have a husband now, are you going to wait? She, verse 12, she says, return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, Naomi had lost all hope. Even if I had a husband tonight, gave birth to sons, you gonna wait till they grow up? You gonna remain unmarried waiting for them? No, my daughters. Look at what she says. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. They wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mom, mother-in-law goodbye. But look at this, Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Verse 16, Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you, Naomi, or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'm going. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. She turns and she says to these two gals, y'all shouldn't come with me because life's miserable and I think God's against me. Don't miss that. Like my life's bitter. You ought to go home, make a future for yourself. Go back to Moab, go back there. Orpah says, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> Not Ruth. In fact, the word Ruth clung to her, the word clung is literally where we get leave and cleave. It's cleave. She, she glued herself to Naomi. All of a sudden, these two gals make their way back to Bethlehem, and then they walk into town. Look here a second. Can you imagine that? It's been a decade since the people in that town saw Naomi. And all of a sudden, Naomi's walking back, and there is no Elimelech. Malon, Kilion, the sons are gone. She just got this foreign daughter-in-law. Like, like one of them people that God told us not to hang out with. Look what it says. Let's read to the finish, and let's make some observation. Verse 19. So the two women went till they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived, the whole town was stirred. I bet it was. I bet it was stirred because Naomi probably walked into town. Life's been tough on her, and I bet it wore on her face. I bet people were looking at her when she came back into town like, wow, 
And then who's this? Look at what happens. The women explain, can this be Naomi? Look at what she says. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Remember what her name means? Pleasant, sweet, beautiful. She says, tomorrow I'm going to the courthouse. I'm changing my name. I'm changing my name to Mara. You're saying, what's the big deal with that? You know what Mara means? Bitter. She's like, I went from being beautiful to bitter. I went from being sweet to sour. I went from being pleasant to prickly. Life has been hard on me, and I'm just going to go to the courthouse and make sure everybody knows. When you check my driver's license, it's going to tell you, bitter old woman. (laughs) That's, That's me now. I went away fool, she said, but the Lord's brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Look here a second. Chapter 1 is about real life, real problems, real people, and how they respond. That's what it's about. I mean, we literally got a decade worth of material in chapter 1. And in a decade worth of material, we see a family who runs and sets up shop in a different place. All of a sudden, dad dies, two boys die, we're left with three widows. By the end of the story, we're left with two widows walking back into the place they left, looking for a good future, looking probably for some food, looking for some good fortune, maybe something might go my way. And in chapter one, we get this story about real people, listen, just like you, by the way, just like you. These are real people just like you just like me, who respond to a life that's gritty and sometimes hard, difficult that they would have never chosen. And the way we see the different people in this chapter respond dictates whether some of them die literally or figuratively and others come alive. There's three responses we see in this chapter. I want you to write them down. Three responses that you and I can choose When we encounter difficulty in life, when life seems to have lost all hope, three ways we can choose to respond. I want you to write the first one down. First is this, I can choose to compromise. I can choose to compromise. You see, Elimelech was a picture of compromise. Stay with me on this. He chose to compromise. He decided, he decided instead of doing what he knew God wanted him to do, Don't go to Moab. God made that clear in the Old Testament. Don't you dare go to Moab. Instead of doing what he knew God wanted him to do, you know what he did? He did what he felt like doing. He did what seemed right to him. Sounds like a proverb. If you have a pen, I would write this down. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There's a way that appears, seems to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Guys, here's what's interesting. I don't think this part's going to be easy for all of us in the room. Elimelech's name was God is my king. That was his name. And yet, he lived as though who was king? He lived as though he was king. You see, Elimelech paid lip service to God. My name, God is my king. My life, I'm the king. 
You see, that's something that all of us in the room need to understand about compromise. I want you to write this little sentence down. Compromise pays lip service to God instead of life surrender to God. Compromise pays lip service to God instead of surrendering my life to God. Let's just be honest in the room. It is easy to come and sing to and about God. It's easy for us to sing about God. It is a different deal to surrender your life to God. Let's be honest. It's easy to listen to sermons. It's different and harder to obey God. It's easy to call yourself a Christian. It's harder to follow Christ. It's easy to get the t-shirt and the bumper sticker and place it on my car. It's harder to place Jesus on the throne of my heart. You see, it's easy to say I trust God. It's harder to actually trust God. It's easy to say, Jesus is king of my life. Yay! It's different to actually live as though Jesus is king of my life. Compromise pays lip service to God. That's what Elimelech's doing. He's paying lip service. God's my king. I'm going to do what I feel is right, even though God said this. Here's what's interesting. Compromise, stay with me, feels better sometimes and seems easier a lot of times. And yet there's a way that seems right to me that ends in death. I have watched compromise kill families, assassinate marriages, destroy relationships, erode character. If my walls could talk, can we just get real for a minute? Can we just do that today? Here's the way it looks. Okay? I don't think all today is going to be comfortable, okay? Are we okay with that? I don't think, that's okay. My walls could talk. There are many times where I have men. Can I talk to you men for a second? Men, fathers, husbands, even boyfriends who will come into my office and this is what they'll say. I know, I know what God says. I'm supposed to be the leader in my home. I know what God says. Like, like, he wants me to lead my family spiritually. He wants me to lead them, point them to him. Yet, my wife's a lot better at that than I am. I just kind of leave that up to her. See what I mean? Lip service. Yeah, but... <laughs> I have people come into my office, they say things like this. You know, Pastor Dan, because they always feel like you need to tell a pastor this, right? Like there's certain things that are funny that people like can start confessing. Like when they come into my office, like, I'm not a priest, right? I'm just a pastor. <laughs> it happens all the time, okay? So come see me sometime. No, I'm kidding. But I have people come in, they'll say this. They'll say, you know, Pastor Dan, like they'll sit down. And if I haven't seen him here for a while, this is what they say. Like, 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 I know God wants me to, to come to church and be around his people and to hear his word. I, I know what God wants. And then they'll say this, but you know, Pastor Dan, you gotta understand, my life's busy. And I got a lot going on. What is that? I know, and I think, and... Oh, we're getting good now. 
because I have teenagers that come in to my office who I love, and I love talking to teenagers. And, and teenagers, you say, man, I'm a Christ follower. I'm, and this is what they'll say to me. Now, this is going to sting, and don't send me an email. It's just, they'll say, I know what God says, that I shouldn't be unequally yoked, that he doesn't want me to marry and be in a relationship with somebody who's not a follower of Christ. Oh, but Pastor Dan, <laughs> we're different. He's a good guy. He's got a good job. He's moral. Pastor Dan, that's what they say. It's like, I know, I know, but <laughs> I have young adults, and not just youngins. I have some old adults come into my office, and they're old or young, single adults. And this happens a lot. They say, oh, Pastor Dan, I know what God says about sex outside of marriage. Like, I get it. I know that. But, but Pastor Dan, we're in love. <laughs> I'm committed. It's kind of just a natural way we express our love and commitment to each other. See? See how that works? You see, what compromises is lip service to God, but not life surrender to God. I'm going to tell you something about compromise, and then we're really going to get in deep. Okay? Compromise is not simply rebellion against God's rules. Listen close. Don't misquote me on Facebook. Compromise is not simply, that's what most people think compromise is. I'm not following God's rules. That's not simply what compromise is. It's ignoring the relationship you have with God. That's what it is. You're saying, help make sense of that. Well, I will. Let's just go in the deep end. I talk to tons of guys, and we like to be real around here if this is your first time here. So you'll never heal unless you're real. Tons of guys who struggle with pornography. Well, now we can hear a pin drop. Because if you're here and you're struggling with it, and you might think I'm the only one in the room that does, you're not. Can we just say that first? You're not. And so when I talk to these fellas about their struggle with pornography, I had a conversation recently. And the guy came in, and usually they're like, Pastor Dan, like, tell me, what do you want to talk about? Well, my wife made me come. Okay, why? I'm looking at stuff I shouldn't be. Really? I said, how do you feel about it? I know it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it's breaking God's rules. Just had this conversation recently. I've had it tons of times. Because it's breaking God's rules. Well, how's that gone? Like, you know it's breaking God. I can't stop. I know it's a rule that he has, and I shouldn't be doing it, right? Uh, Yeah, that's, it is, yeah, I said, what if it was more than just breaking his rules? They said, what what do you mean? I said, let me ask you a question. Do you believe God loves you? Yeah. You believe he loves you? Yeah. I said, do you trust him? Do you think he wants what's best for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I trust him. Really. I said, let me ask you this. Do you think he knows more than you? Yeah. I said, then ultimately, when I head down that path or any path of compromise, I'm simply not breaking a rule. That's why I'll never change. But when I put it in the context of relationships, I'm looking at a God who loves me more than I understand, who wants what's best for me and actually knows what that is. And he says, here's the deal. 
The whole idea of intimacy and sex and all of that is enjoyed in marriage. Well, he's a killjoy. No, he's all about joy. He created it. See how that works? And so when I compromise, well, I'm going to do it my way, I'm turning my back on a God that I know loves me, on a God that I know knows what's best for me. It's not this God has these rules. And like It's this, I think I'll be king because I kind of think I might know what's best. See how that works? See, compromise pays lip service. And when you read the story of Elimelech, here's what's interesting. Elimelech went to this place that was forbidden. And guess what happens? His sons end up what? Marrying some gals that were forbidden. Tells me something about compromise. I want you to write this down. Compromise is contagious. It's catchy. It's contagious. He compromised. His boys compromised. Compromise is contagious. Husbands and dads, can I look at you for a second? I want to see your eyes. I love you. There's one thing I love in my time in ministry. It's hanging out with talking to guys. I really feel like we live in a culture where guys don't talk to guys about stuff that matters. Here's the deal. Can I tell you something about compromise? It's contagious. It's contagious. And compromise in your family, in your marriage, will affect the whole family. Statistics bear this out. You can test me on this. Don't take anything I say without testing me on it. But statistics bear this out, that in a family where mom's all in on Jesus and dad's not, chances are slim that the kids will want to follow Jesus. But when pops is in, guess what? Percentages skyrocket. Why do I tell you that, dads? Look here a second. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, guess what? God calls you to be the primary spiritual coach in your home. In fact, you ought to write it down this way. You're their their first pastor. You're their first pastor. If you're the dad, if you're the husband, you're their first pastor in their home. And here's what I know. I'm a guy. You're like, well, Pastor Dan doesn't struggle with that. Baloney. I'm a regular guy just like you. You know what? It's a lot easier for me to focus on making sure my family's physical needs are taken care of. I'm the guy. I put the roof over their head, clothes on their back, food on the table. That's what I do. Jennifer, you take care of all that emotional, spiritual stuff, right? It's easy. And even better yet, because I'm the guy and I'm an athlete and a coach, you know what else? Yeah, you know something, sweeter. I'll take care of make sure their athletics is cared for. And I go out of my way to make sure they got all the best coaches, all the, all the best equipment, all the best uniform, while ignoring the spiritual. That's Elimelech. And I'll make sure my family's provided for, and he totally ignored making sure they were covered spiritually. Guess what happened? Compromise became contagious. Let me ask you, dads, a question. This is not at all picking. This, and, and if you're here with your wife, do not elbow him. And I'm not being funny. Don't elbow him. Because no one maybe taught him this. No one teaches us how to do this. 
Dad, when is the last time you just had a conversation with your kids about God? I don't know. What, I get this all the time. I don't know. I don't know how to say things like you do. Yes, you do. Because you know your kids better than I do. When's the last time you just walked out and said, man, look at what God created and began to have a conversation? When's the last time you prayed with and for them? I'm not a good prayer. If you can talk, you're a good prayer. Dads, can I ask you a question? You dads that have gals in your home, you have a daughter. When's the last time you talked to her about who she's dating? I know, I know. I can feel the tension in the room. I get it. Us dads, this is what I feel more. I, I, I'll make sure the oil was changed in your car, man. While she's going out with some yahoo that you don't even know if he knows God, loves God, Lord knows what they're doing in that car. You see what I'm saying? When's the last time you had a conversation that mattered? See, compromise is catchy, and then you ought to write this down. Elimelech shows us that my compromise leaves other people around me compromised. When you get to the end of his story, he dies, his boys die, and guess what? Their gals are left away from the place of God and the people of God. They're compromised. I can choose to compromise, but Naomi shows me a different picture, and that's this. She goes from being Naomi to Mara. She moved from beauty to bitter, from sweet to sour, from pleasant to prickly. Look at verse 13. It's more bitter for me than for you. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I can choose to compromise or I can be like Naomi, I can become bitter. I can become bitter. Naomi had lost all hope. She believed God was out for her. Look at verse 13 in your Bibles. It says, here's what she says, because bitterness does some interesting things. She said, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Do you ever notice about bitterness? I, you write this down. You can think about it. I've had people talking to me after the first service, and they said this one caught them. But bitterness, when I become bitter, I'm prone to compare. You ever notice that? Like when I get bitter because life's been tough, you know what happens? I mean, maybe you know somebody like this. Maybe you are somebody like this. You think you have it tough. Well, let me tell you my story, right? And it's always worse. Like whatever I faced is always worse than what you're facing. And so bitterness has this, that I'm prone to compare my, my tough time with your tough time, and mine is going to... Think about who she's talking to. She, Naomi's standing there talking to these two young gals that had just become widows themselves. She said, it's a lot harder for me than it is for you. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> I can feel in the warmth, right? See, bitterness is prone to compare, but that's not all. Look at what she says. Verse 20, she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. See, it doesn't just compare, but bitterness tends to blame when I get bitter, you know what I do? I begin to blame. This is what's interesting. Naomi never mentions, hey, I think we're in this situation because Elimelech, my sons, she begins to blame who? God. Guys, please listen to me. I want to say this with gentleness, kindness. But if my walls can talk and praise God, they can't. I have parents that will come in and say, why would God do this? My kid wants nothing to do with Jesus. Why would God do this, that my kid won't go to church? And I say, oh, tell me about your kid, and tell me about, well, we brought him to church, and we thought that would get some good into him. And I always ask this question, well, did you spend any time talking to them about Jesus? No, we brought him to church. <laughs> and now God 
is being mean. My kids. I'm like, wow. Isn't that interesting how that works? You see, when I get bitter, it's like, oh, man, i got to find somebody to blame. But then there's something else interesting. Because i got these two Moabite gals, Orpah and Ruth. And who's the only Christian, the only believer they know? This is interesting. Stay with me. As far as we can tell from the story, like the only believer they know is who? Naomi. And do you see what Naomi, the only believer, the only Christian they know does? She's got these two Moabite gals. Look at what she does. She's like, why don't you guys go back and worship your pagan God? Boy, that's evangelism 101. You see, here's what I know. When I get bitter... I tend to repel people from God instead of attract them to God. It's why some of you have had a hard time coming back to church. Because as a kid, you grew up with a Christian mom and dad that were cranky. You grew up around people who were believers, but they were bitter. I'm glad you're here. But if I'm just honest with myself and realize what bitterness does, it tends to repel people. Naomi's telling them, go back and worship that demon God y'all sacrificing your kids to. What? And then look at this, verse 21, she says, because I went away fool, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Don't miss this. Read your Bible in color, not black and white. Naomi's talking to the ladies and she's like, man, things are hard for me. It's really tough for me. And then she says, I went away 10 years ago and I was full. I had it all and now I ain't got nothing. Look here a second. Who's standing right beside her? Ruth? Naomi's like, I ain't got nothing. If I'm Ruth, I'm like, what am I, chopped liver? See, here's what I know. When I get bitter, I tend to gripe instead of be grateful. See, all Naomi could focus on is what she lost, not what she might have as she walked into the future. All she could think about was, I got to find somebody to blame. I got to find somebody to blame instead of, I wonder how I could walk forward with what God has blessed me with. And it just happens to be Ruth. I didn't choose it. I wouldn't have chosen. My, my boy chose it. But, but she said to me, I'm going to stick with you to the very end. You see, here's what I know. You can choose to compromise. Elimelech died. He died. There's a way that seems right to a man ends up in death. I can become bitter. Guess what? Naomi died. She became Mara. Bitterness. I'm so grateful that there's this character named Ruth who it says Ruth clung to her and said, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people are going to be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die, be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Listen, this is Ruth saying yes to God. This is Ruth's conversion. Think about it. She says yes to God, and the only evangelist she has in her life is a compromising Christian and a bitter believer. That's amazing. And yet she says yes to God. You see, here's the deal. I can choose to compromise. I can become bitter. I want you to write this down. I can cling to hope. And that's what Ruth does. I can cling to hope 
And there is no spiritual platitudes here. This, this isn't some sort of feel-good fantasy. That's not what Ruth is doing. But Ruth decides to cling to the God of Naomi even though life is really hard. She doesn't have her husband. She doesn't have her father-in-law. She's gonna leave everything she knows. Moab. And she says, I'm going to cling to hope. I'm going to trust this God I can't always see. I don't always understand. I don't always feel into a future I can't predict. And there's three things she tells us about hope. And then we're done. She says this to Naomi, where you go, I'll go. Hope, hope, write this down, connects to the people of God. Hope connects to the people of God. Somehow Ruth knew in her young faith, I need to be with a community of hope. In the New Testament, this thing called the church is a community of hope. People who hope in God, even when we don't feel it, even when we can't hear his voice, even when he's not showing up in some miraculous way. Guys, the people, the people I get most nervous about are the people that walk away from community. When I don't see you, I know some of you, right? That makes me nervous. You know why? Bitterness grows in isolation. Compromise becomes easier apart from community. See, hope connects to the people of God. Even when I don't always feel like it. I have a friend of mine I have a friend of mine, and, and her life has, has not been easy. And I talk to her from time to time. She comes here. She shows up because she knows she needs to connect here. And, and if I told you her story, you'd be like, she's a lot like Ruth. She's a lot like Ruth. And, and she doesn't always feel like coming. But she comes. You know why? Because she's like, somehow i got to be there. Connect it with the people of hope. And not only that, I think Ruth shows us that hope acknowledges the presence of God. Hope acknowledges the presence of God, that even when I can't see what he's doing, hear his voice, really understand what he's doing, I know he's there. Let me tell you this, and I've got to erase this. The book of Ruth, there are no miracles. You're like, why are you saying that? Because there's many of us like, I would trust God if he would just like, pow, do something really big. book of Ruth, there's no miracles. Not a single miracle. Ruth didn't get that. In the book of Ruth, you never hear the audible voice of God. Some of us are like, well, I would trust God if he'd just like speak, if he'd say something. It would scare the liver out of you if he did right now, by the way. <laughs> it just would. The book of Ruth, audible voice of God never shows up. You see, Ruth decides, I'm going to trust the silent, sovereign hand of God that he is present and he's doing something. You see, somehow... Hope acknowledges that God is at work, that he's here. She trusted that he knew more than her. She trusted he was working in ways she couldn't totally understand. That's why she didn't just acknowledge his presence, but I want you to write this down. Hope surrenders to the plan of God. Hope surrenders to the plan of God. Think about Ruth for a minute. This is her life up until this point. She marries a guy whose name means sickness or death. She buries her father-in-law. She buries her brother-in-law. She buries her husband. She leaves everything she knows. She leaves her family. And she connects and clings to a woman who is a bitter old woman. 
because somehow her hope was in a God. And here's what Ruth knew. And I want you to remember this. Ruth knew that it was better to be away from home with God than it was to be at home without God. Ruth knew, we have no indication she ever had any idea she was going to get remarried. And Ruth knew something. It's better for me to be single with God than to go back there and get married without God. You see, that's hope. Hope says, I'm going to connect to the people of God. They're speaking into my life. They're surrounding me. I'm going to acknowledge the presence of God. He's doing something. I don't always know what he's doing. And so I'm going to surrender to his plan. And I would rather be with God, even if it feels uncomfortable. Ruth had no idea. She's walking to a foreign land. She doesn't know anybody in Bethlehem. She's connected to a woman who's just bitter. And she's going to say, I'd rather be with God in this uncomfortable situation that I don't know how it's going to turn out than to turn my back and get control of everything. I'm going to go marry some guy, live it up. She said, I'd rather be single with Naomi, with God, than married apart from God. Teenagers, young adults... That's worth the price of admission. It's better to be single with God than it is to be married without God. You see, when I read the story, I zoom in, and i got to find myself. Can I ask you this? Where do you find yourself this morning? Where do you find yourself? Are you tiptoeing in the land of compromise, paying lip service to God, saying, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm the king? Listen to me. Compromise is contagious. And your compromise will leave other people compromised. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Some of you are here and you're like, man, life's been hard, kind of like Ruth, kind of like Naomi. And you find yourself teetering into that bitterness. You're like, all I can see is what I've lost. All I can do is blame and compare. Nobody really got it like me. And you might be right. Like Ruth had a bad, Naomi had a bad. You might be right. And the whole time as you do that and you focus on what you've lost, it may be hard for you to see what you've gained. It might be hard for you as you tend to blame to look around at how you might be blessed. You see, hope is something that says, I'm going to acknowledge that God's doing something. I don't get it. But I'm going to follow him because I'd rather be walking this path I don't get with him than I would be walking that path without him. And so, God, this story doesn't end here. It's going to get good next week. And yet that's where we end this morning. And as we sing this song to end our service, I'm asking that you help us to find ourselves. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, the band's going to set up. We're going to finish with this, this song that was introduced. And my encouragement to you is this, as we sing this song, that you find yourself in the story. You might be hearing, I'm Elimelech. I'm in the land of compromise. This morning, God invites you to say, hey, do you believe I love you? Do you think I know what's best? Do you trust me? His desire is that you run from the land of compromise into the land of commitment, into the land of relationship. Some of you would say, you know, I'm in, in, in that area of bitterness. And life's been hard. And this morning he's just saying, I know, you can be real with me. 
why don't you walk with me? Cling to hope. Maybe I'm doing something you can't see right now. Maybe I'm working in ways you don't understand, can't feel right now. But I'm a God who came and walked this dirt with you. I'm a God they turned their back on. I'm a God they slung on a cross. I'm a God who died for you. I'm a God who understands, trust me. Some of you are hearing like, man, I don't even have a relationship with God. Well, that's the beauty of this whole thing, that God loves you more than you understand. That's the gospel. And that Jesus came and died in your place to give you a hope beyond this life so that you could be saved from your sins for a purpose, for eternity. This morning, his invitation to you is simply to say yes to him. And God, I pray that you'd meet us where we're at this moment so that you can take us where we need to go.